0: Hey, it's Andy. Welcome or welcome back to the Woodstock City Church podcast. At the end of this episode, please take a moment to download the Woodstock City Church app where you can access all of our recent message content as well as find out about what's going on around Woodstock City Church. And the app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. love that song. It was, it was a, an anchor song uh, for for me in a season, a story for another day, but the king of our hearts, the king, Jesus, who is unlike any other king, who, who came to serve his people like no other king, who, who came to love his people like no other king, who, who came to interact with his people like no other king, who came ultimately to to die for his people like no other king. And uh, we want to celebrate with you guys a little bit as, as a church. Uh, last weekend, Easter weekend, we got to celebrate that reality and tell a lot of people about that king. Um, I don't know if you were with us on Easter Sunday, some of you were here on Saturday, Sunday, but over the weekend, we ran out of space to put people, which is pretty amazing. Um, We, at the 11 o'clock, we quite literally, and I don't, I don't, I mean this to celebrate what God's doing through this church, so please don't hear anything different, but we ran out of physical chairs. We were about to start pulling office chairs out of our offices so that people didn't have to sit on the floor. In fact, we, our K-5 environment called Upstreet, um, the copy workroom is called the post office. We were putting people anywhere that had a TV that could stream the service, including the post office, okay? They're watching the service and the copy machine is right here. And I, 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 wish, we, I wish everyone could have sat in here where, where they wanted to, but... But I left Sunday with the rest of our staff and so many volunteers and just tired. We were all exhausted. So worth it. But my heart left so encouraged. And it was a reminder, just a little bit of a reminder from God that, hey, don't you forget the best days of this church are ahead, not behind. And so I left encouraged and more excited about the future of our church than ever before. Not just because the building was full. It's bigger than that. It's better than that. But because there are still people outside of the walls of this space that are looking for something. That are looking for answers. That are looking for someone. His name is Jesus. And, and, and here's the to I want to thank you. Um, those of you that give have given financially to this church to build this church so that we can be this church of so many people, I want to say thank you. If you're with us on Easter, I hope that you were reminded that your giving is not in vain. Your generosity is helping build up the kingdom and changing the trajectory of families and students and people alike. And so I wanna say thank you for believing in this place and thank you for giving so generously. And and if it's your first time here or if you're new here, you can ignore this next part. This is not for you, okay? But if you call this place home and you've been thinking about a time to start giving again or maybe take the first step towards giving, what a time. What a time to jump into what God is building as we continue to reach the community and be a part of lives changing forever. You can scan the QR code and it'll give you details. Just click the give link. It'll tell you all about what it might look like for you to engage with us in that way, to link arms together. In fact, I almost forgot about this. On Friday, literally two days ago, remember I told you guys there was this middle school event happening? On Friday night, I was here, I was up on the balcony. In this room were over 800 middle school students on a Friday night, on a Friday night. Y'all, I don't even wanna go to church on a Friday night. And they came to church on a Friday night. Target off 92 was hopping with moms that dropped their kids off on Friday night. We should have worked out getting a percentage of their sales. But we believe in the next generation and you are helping us build a church with the next generation in mind. So then, and we've said this before, this church doesn't die when we do. So thank you. And I wanna encourage you to consider jumping in. With us, I'm going to pray, and then I will be up here to kick off part one of the human condition. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this church, and we are so grateful for the influence that you've given us to steward. May we not take that lightly. May we be inspired by what we're experiencing, and may be we so compelled by the work that you're doing through this church that we would want to take it outside of the walls of this church to everybody that we meet. We're grateful, Father, that the message of Jesus is for everyone. And we can't wait to see what you do through this place and through these people. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So we are kicking off a brand new series this morning called The Human Condition. And if you are human, this series is for you Okay, we, we've made the bar really, really low, the rung, the lowest rung on the ladder. If you're human, this conversation is for you, regardless of your faith background, regardless of if you have a faith, if you don't have a faith, regardless of your stage of life, regardless of your relationship status, regardless of your um, job, your level of education, even your income level, regardless of your story or who you are. If you are human, this series And these next few conversations are for you. The human condition, our human condition. And by condition, I mean this, the state within which we operate, exist, and live. The condition, the the state within which we live and exist. And our human condition is this, is that to be human, to be human, is to live in the tension of the gap that exists between Who we want to be and who we actually are. Don't elbow your spouse. we got a long way to go, okay? The gap that exists between who we want to be and who we actually are. We've all felt this tension. The tension between how we want to live and how we actually live. Um, The tension between the parents we desire to be and the parents that we actually are are the, the spouse and the boyfriend, the girlfriend, the fiance, the friend or the roommate that we promised to be versus the one that we actually are and we felt it the the way that we intended to respond versus how we actually responded in that moment of conflict yet again the decisions that we hoped to make when the opportunity arised versus the ones that we actually made the discipline that we had fully intended to exhibit versus the lack thereof which is why all you stopped working out on January 2nd right? We, we've all felt this the tension between how we actually live and how we, how we want to live and how we actually, there's a gap there and we've all felt this gap. It's why the self-help industry is worth billions of dollars because we've all felt this gap. We feel the internal struggle and the internal conflict between how we want to be, how we want to live versus how we actually live. And the reason... The reason we are so aware of the struggle, again, the human, regardless of who you are, you felt the struggle. And the reason we're so aware of it, the reason why we can feel it almost tangibly is because we know that we can do better. The reason why we feel the tension and the reason why we know this gap exists is because we want to be better. We want to do better. Otherwise, we wouldn't even know that the gap was there, but we know the gap. Why? Because we wanna do better. But this series, this series... Yes, I hope it's gonna help you do better. I think it certainly can. But this series, these conversations are way bigger than just doing better. I don't wanna have a conversation about just changing our behavior. No, no, no. This is gonna be a series about you and I experiencing God's best for your life. And you might not be in a place to say or to believe that there is a God that desires best for you. And and that's okay if that's where you are. I'm really glad you're here. But what if there was... And what if he actually does desire best for you? And and here's what's true is this gap, this gap between how we want to live and how we actually live, it threatens to steal and rob you and me of that best, but it doesn't have to. And God certainly doesn't want it to. And another reason why this conversation is so important, and we're gonna jump into part one and set up the whole series. You know um, who else feels the tension between how you want to live and how you actually live? The people closest to you. Those that you love, those that you parent, those that you work with, those that you lead, those that you hope to influence one day. In fact, in some cases, they feel the tension and the collateral damage of that gap more than we do. So this conversation, so important, and one that I believe could have life-changing implications for you and certainly for me. So today, as we set up the next couple of weeks, I want to unpack why, why the gap exists. And the following two Sundays, we'll jump into the practical implications as a result. But the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7, he puts the perfect most relatable words around this tension. I, you're going to think I made this verse up. I promise you, this is in the New Testament. Paul wrote this. This is what he wrote in Romans chapter 7 verse 15. I do not understand what I do. You're like, "Man, I never knew it could be so relatable." I just some of y'all just found your life verse. A lot of husbands are going to wake up to this tattooed on their forehead. Um I do not understand what I do. Paul here describing the confusion that human beings experience as a result of their own behavior, of our own behavior. In fact, this phrase literally translates, what I am producing, I do not know. What my life produces in moments, I do not understand. It doesn't make sense. We've been there. We've been there. I don't understand what. why did I... In the moment, it was, I don't, I don't understand what I do. And the reason, the reason there is confusion, the reason why Paul felt this, and the reason why we can all relate to this, the reason why there's confusion is because there is an intention, a hope, or a desire that we have that is contrary to what is actually produced in our lives. So Paul goes on, he says, "For I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. The quandary of the human condition that I, I don't, it's not even that I just don't do what I, I don't do what I want to do. No, I get further. I end up doing what I hate, what I don't want to do, what I said I would never do. In the Christian vernacular, we call this sin. We call this sin. In other words, missing the mark. Now, I understand for some of you, you hear the word sin and you're immediately turned off because you went to a church and, and all they told you was your sin, sin, sin and how bad you are and this, that, and the other. So for you, if you're not there yet, if, if, if you're not even sure that you believe there's a thing called sin, okay. But, but here's where we can land on is that even for you, there's a peace, there's a conscience that you have and even you're aware when you cross the line that you have your own conscience. And when you do something that rubs up against that conscience, even you know, without anybody telling you, you know that you did something that you did not like. But for the purposes of our conversation, for the purpose of our conversation, um, I, I wanna define sin for us. One of the best definitions of sin that, that I've kind of ever heard is this, is that sin is anything that moves us inward towards self and away from God. Anything that moves us inward towards self and away from God. And any time you and I move inward towards self and away from God, we always hurt us and others in the process. That for Paul, whenever he's doing the things that that he hates, that he does, for all of us who experience that tension, again, whether you call it sin or it's just your own conscience, we've all been there. It's those moments when we compromise your integrity, either at home or at work, that moment in your anger, you're in an argument, you're saying things you're gonna regret, but then you've all been there. There's that one line, it's the low blow. You'll win if you say it, but you'll eventually lose if you say it. I shouldn't say it, and then you say it. We've been there. In our anger, when we use our words as weapons, We've been there. It's when our selfishness overrides everything and we put our interests before others. It's when our pride keeps us from being able to forgive and instead we just hold on to bitterness. It's when we idolize a salary or a job, the expense, a family. Come on, to be human, we get this. We do things and we say things and I'm very intentional to say we, because myself included, we we make decisions. And in the aftermath of the regret, of the shame, of the relational tension, pain, or hurt that we caused, we're left thinking, why did I do that? Like, why did I say that? Why did I go over there? Why did I respond? Why didn't I just leave? Like, what was I thinking? It Didn't make sense, but now it does. Like why? The human condition, come on, is to wrestle with this tension. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if you're a Jesus follower, you've probably had moments where you're thinking like, really, again? Like surely God's patience is running out on me. I should know better by now because it's the same thing over and over and over again. It's too late for me now. There's no going back. Or if you're not a Jesus follower, again, again, you've had moments when you've acted against your own conscience and you even didn't like what was produced. We've been there. We felt it. So did Paul. And he goes on then in verse 16, he says, okay, and if I do what I do not want to do, makes an interesting statement. I agree that the law is good. Now the Apostle Paul here is most likely talking about his experience under the Mosaic Law, which is like the standard by which you were supposed to live by. So we're not under the Mosaic Law anymore. And so for our context, if you're a Jesus follower, this could be God's law, the the way of Jesus. And if you're not a Jesus follower and you're like, I don't know that there's a way of Jesus, Don't, don't tell me how to live, that's okay. You can say your own conscience that you rub up against you sometimes. But the principle is the same. What Paul is saying is if I'm doing, what I don't want to do, but I do it anyway, that means there is a standard against which I am judging myself, and I am saying that that standard is better than the way that I'm living. The overarching principle is this, don't miss this. If you do something that you don't want to do, you're admitting to yourself, and I'm admitting to myself, that there is a better way, a better way to live, a better way to experience happiness, A better way to filter your decisions. A better way to marriage. A better way to handling conflict. A better way to navigate relational tensions. A better way to parent. A better way to have fun. A better way to get that promotion. A better way to experience intimacy. A better way to find significance. If we're doing what we don't want to, that means there's a better way. And if you're not a Jesus follower, here's a question that's worth asking. If the standard that that you bump up into or your own conscience when you cross something and do something even you don't want to do, if that standard is not from God, here's a question worth wrestling with genuinely. If not from God, where does that standard come from? That's a question worth asking. So the apostle Paul lays out this tension and he kind of, he splits it up like, hey, there's an I, the I is Paul, the I is you, the I is me, the I is us. And it's kind of got these two sides. That I produces disobedience to the law, but that same I does not understand how it happens. You could put toddler up here, I think, and it would, it would read <laughs> just the same. And he says, that I also, it, it goes on, it, that I hates what it does, but then it does it anyway. The I is Paul, the I is you, the I is me, the I is us. And so logically, logically, there has to be another part of the equation. There has to be another part of the equation, a compulsion that goes beyond our good intentions. To which Paul then continues a logical argument, concludes in verse 17, as it is, taking into account all that I've kind of laid out, as it is, as I see it, It is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. It is sin living, sin dwelling in me. Now, when we think about sin, we often think of sin the verb. I don't want you to think about sin the verb. I want you to think about sin as a noun, as a thing, as an entity whose sole desire is to reign over your heart and wreak havoc in your life. And we're gonna get more into this next week, but I want you to think of sin, not as a verb, as a noun, as a master who wants to kill every good thing in your life and in mine. And Paul says that entity, that's it, it lives in, in me. And Paul's not making excuses. No, 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 no. He's making a crucial point about the human condition. And he puts more words around it. Verse 18, for I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. So remember, sin, not a verb, a noun. And here he makes it out. Sinful nature. Remember the divided eye that we just looked looked at? There's a part of you that desires better. There's a part of you that desires God's best. And there's a part of you that wants to sabotage it at the same time. Paul says, there's this sinful nature. And again, maybe you're like, I don't, I don't know about the whole sin thing. Okay, whatever that thing is in you that leads you to wanna act against even your best intentions. Paul would say, that's my, that's my sinful nature. The New Testament talks about it as our flesh. It's a, a metaphor The flesh, our sinful nature, it is a metaphor for our propensity and my propensity to sin. The flesh, our sinful nature, that part that rages even with our best intentions, it is our propensity to do what we hate. It is our propensity to look inward and to be all about ourselves, even if it hurts people. It is our propensity in our relationships to be selfish, prideful, and even just downright mean. The flesh, our sinful nature, it's our propensity to gratify our selfish desires no matter what it costs anybody around us. And for those of you that follow Jesus, that flesh, our sinful nature, it is the propensity to disregard the way of Jesus and do our own thing regardless of whether you're up for calling it your sinful nature or not, because you're not quite there yet, you know that there is something there. Paul's trying to put language around it, okay? But the human condition is this, is that all facets of our humanity are affected by a tendency to want to face inward toward self, gratify our flesh, and do what even we don't want to do. And watch this. Our sinful nature, our flesh, our sin nature, is why the gap between how we want to live and how we actually live exists. So verse 21, it says, okay, so I find this law at work, this word law, think of the word, it's the word principle, like Newton's laws of motion, okay? It's a principle, it could read, so I find this principle at work, the apostle Paul concludes, I find this principle at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. Paul, using his life as a testing ground, sums it up. Although I want to do good, I've got these intentions. Evil is right there with me. And he, he says, verse 24, what a wretched man I am. In his pity, this could also read miserable, defeated, discouraged. The apostle Paul gets to the point where he's like, I, I can't, I can't, I can't do this. I can't figure it out. I can't fix this. The apostle Paul gets to a place where he's like, my good intention does nothing to resolve this tension. My good intentions does nothing to, nothing to resolve this tension that I find myself in. I Can't fix it. So it leads Paul to a place where he's got to look beyond himself. So he asks the most logical question, who will rescue me, he asks. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? To be rescued means you can't do it on your own. So the apostle Paul's like, I I can't fix this. I can't figure it out. I don't know what to do with this. Who will rescue me? And so the good news, he concludes, but thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That word delivers means to be set free from, to be rescued from. Delivered from what? Rescued from what? The plight of our human condition, that there's this thing, this entity sin that reigned over our lives, disconnected us from God and led us and leads us down a life that we don't want to lead. The human condition, watch this, The human condition is that we all have the same problem. We all have a sin problem. Sin does not discriminate. The verb sin is a symptom of the real problem, sin, the noun. But hear me, hear me. You don't have a sin problem because you're bad. I'm not up here trying to tell you that you're bad, that you're bad, that you're bad. If you went to a church and you stopped going because all they could tell you was how bad you were and how bad you were, I'm sorry. You don't have a sin problem because you are bad. If that's the case, then we just need to talk about how bad we all are. No, you don't have a sin problem because you're bad. We all have a sin problem because we're human. We have a sin problem, all of us, because we're human. And the Apostle Paul talks about that a few, a couple chapters earlier in Romans chapter five. He tells us how we got there. He says this He says, therefore, just as sin, just as sin entered the world through one man, and the one man he's talking about is Adam. Adam, the first human in Genesis chapter one. Now, real quickly, again, whether or not you think Genesis chapter one is literal or even allegorical that explains the reality within which we now find ourselves, this internal conflict, the point is the same that sin entered into the world and affected all people. So, so Paul writes, uh, therefore just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam's sin, and death through sin, we'll talk about this next week, sin kills all good things. And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. So through Adam, the first human, we were all born into it. And so all of us are born in this thing called sin. Let me, let me illustrate this for us, okay? So this is, this is us as humans, okay? These M&Ms, peanut M&Ms, because they're the best ones. Um, they Wow, you got really excited about that. I'd give you them, but I touched these earlier. You don't want them. Um, we'll, we'll make that happen later. So this is us. We're, 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 we're humans. And so what Paul is saying is that because of Adam as the, 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 the first human, all of us, through no fault of your own, you might not think it's fair. I get it. Don't be mad at me, okay? This is Paul, and it's really Adam's fault. Be mad at Adam, okay? This is not on me. Just telling you what happened, what I think happened. Um, and so um, all of humanity are born into Adam in that we are born um, connected to Adam's sin. So it's like we're relationally, we're connected. We're, we're under the curse of sin because of Adam. And so every human, every human that's born, born into Adam, nothing you can do about it. Like, like me, everybody, your girlfriend, everybody, your boyfriend, Your perfect grandma that cross-stitches Bible verses. Sorry, Granny. In Adam. Everybody. Like, you name it, right? Like, your husband. Your husband. Your husband. Everybody. Your mother-in-law. I love mine, by the way. Everyone. Everyone. Ju- My wife, Julie. <laughs> I'm just kidding, babe, I love you. In Adam, <laughs> everyone in Adam, what Paul is saying is every human being, just by virtue of being born, is born into Adam. Did it. <laughs> Oddly satisfying. I even practiced a lot, but I was still nervous. <clears throat> a lot of humans, all humans, in Adam, with no hope, nothing that we could do to change our situation, stuck. With this thing, this noun, this entity called sin that marked us, that defined us, and disconnected us from God. But Paul goes on to give us the good news. He says, consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, Adam's trespass, Adam's sin resulted in condemnation, that we would be, we were condemned before God, disconnected from God, condemned for all people. So also one righteous act resulted in justification in life for all people. What's he talking about? One righteous act. He's talking about the work of Jesus, the work of Jesus, that Jesus came and he lived a life in order to save us. He came into this world, And he died on the cross for your sins and for mine. Romans tells us, Paul tells us that the wages of sin, what sin earned us was death. So Jesus came and he died the death that we deserved. And then he rose from the grave on the third day, conquering its power. So through that one righteous act, the work of Jesus, Paul says that we're justified, Justified is a fancy word of saying because of the work of Jesus, like we're good with God. Like we can stand in right standing with God and be in the family of God. And Jesus came to give us life that because of the work that he did, because of his death and resurrection, there is a new life available to us. He goes on, for just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, the disobedience of Adam, all of us made sinners, so also through the obedience Of the one man, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. That because of Jesus, because we now have the opportunity to follow Jesus, we can be made righteous. In other words, every day we can take steps to look a little bit more like Jesus than we did before. See, we were stuck here. We had no hope. We were powerless, just as powerless as these M&Ms are to leave this jar. We were equally as powerless to change our situation. But because of Jesus, there's a new hope. Because of Jesus and his work, there is a new hope for you and for me. The disobedience of one man brought death to all people. But the obedience of Jesus brought life to all who believe. So that because of Jesus, we are no longer stuck in Adam with no hope, but rather because of the work of Jesus, we can live connected to him, live in Christ, relationally connected to Jesus. That because of his work on the cross, he defeated death's sins power so that it no longer ruled and reigned over us so that we can now live in Christ free, from the power of sin. That because of the work of Jesus, um, our sin no longer defines our future. No, no, in Christ, we are forgiven. That in Adam, the shame that wants to speak loudest over your heart and your life. No, no, in Christ, God wants to remind you who you are. You are a son and you are a daughter and there's nothing you can do to change his love for you. That here in Adam, we were stuck In a life that would lead to nothing good for you or for me, but in Christ, we have a new opportunity to follow and to walk in the fullness that Jesus came to offer you. That we could have never moved ourselves from in Adam to being connected relationally to Christ, but Jesus came and did the work to make it possible, to set you free, to experience God's best for you, for me to experience God's best for me. This, this is the message of the gospel. It's the very message of the gospel. The apostle Paul opens up Romans talking about it. And I wanted to save it until the end, but that Jesus did a work for us that we were powerless to do on our own. In fact, he says this in Romans chapter one, verse 16. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel, it means good news. God's good news to humans. That humanity has a devastatingly great need that we could not fix on our own. Stuck in Adam." Stuck, disconnected from Jesus, and Jesus came to do a work to change that reality for us. To our hopeless human condition, Jesus came to set us free. God's love for you is so great that he sent Jesus to die a death that we deserved. And he rose again. And Paul says that the gospel, I love this. He says, it's the power of God to save us. For those of you that have been in church for a little while, when's the last time you thought about the gospel as the power of God to do for us what we were powerless to do on our own? Here's what's true. Nothing magnifies the power of a solution better than fully understanding the depth of the problem. And Paul was so unashamed of this gospel message. Why? Why? Because he had understood the depth of his humanity and he had experienced the miracle working power, of the gospel. And Paul had every reason to be ashamed of this message. In the Greco-Roman world that he was writing in, power was found by way of conquering, climbing the social ladder politically and economically. And then here comes Paul with this message that a Jewish carpenter who hung on a cross to save humanity from a problem that was common to all of us would have been shameful. And to take it even further in that world, to follow a king who loved, to follow a king that served, to follow a king that laid his life down for his own people, weak. But Paul wasn't ashamed. Why? Because he had experienced its power, and how it changed his life. And this is a sermon for another day. But the apostle Paul, he made it his full-time job to persecute the way of Jesus. In fact, he wanted to blot it out like he wanted to kill it. He oversaw the first ever Christian execution. And then he had an encounter with a resurrected Savior, and it changed his life forever. The power of the gospel took his broken life, made it whole, healed, and filled him with purpose. The gospel is the the power of God to save those who believe. And so for anyone in the room, for anyone in the room, you need to know, you need to know that the power of God is stronger than your sin. In fact, I need to speak for a second to the Jesus follower and the things you've just, you've gone too far again, you've messed it up again, God is over you, God is done with you, that, okay, there's just no point anymore, I should know better by now. You need to understand that the power of God as displayed for us in the gospel is bigger than your sin again. The forgiveness of Jesus is still available to you and for you. That the power of God is greater than the shame that you feel Come on, no matter who you are, it's bigger than the struggle you're experiencing and it's big enough and powerful enough to redeem any story, even one that you think is already half written. New can begin today. And how do I know that the power of God is big enough and powerful enough for all of that? Because it was that very power that defeated death when Jesus rose from the grave. Your best possible life, experiencing all that God has for you, I'm just telling you, it cannot be found in Adam with sin ruling and reigning your life disconnected from Jesus. In fact, if you're being honest, some of you have tried and you're back in church because you're trying to figure out the answer. But here's the good news. Jesus invites us into the family. He gave everything so that we could not only be relationally connected to him, but forever stay relationally connected to him. In Christ. Now, we're gonna talk about this next week. Just because we're in Christ doesn't mean the influence of our sin nature is totally gone. We'll get to that next week. However, its power is broken. And we have a new master, a new savior, to follow in a new life available to us in Jesus, who invites us in to follow the life that he modeled and to live out the ethic that says, I cannot claim to love God if I fail to love people. I cannot claim to love God if all I do is gratify inward and satisfy inward. I cannot love God, Jesus would say, if all I'm doing is facing inward. No, no, his ethic was different. You can't love God if you fail to love people. And the power of God, the power of God wants to save you from a life that will lead to a lot of regret. He wants to save you from a life that will lead to a lot of pain and a lot of hurt. He wants to save you from a life that will lead to unhealthy relationships, broken relationships, a loss of influence, an empty life where you'll still be left wanting and one where you're ultimately separated from your heavenly father. But in Christ, he invites you to find hope, to find grace again and again and again, to find redemption for even the most broken and shattered pieces of your life and of your heart, to find more purpose than you could have ever imagined, and to find a way of living that actually leads to life, the life that maybe you didn't even know that you weren't living yet, and ultimately, to never have to live another day separated from our heavenly Father. That life is available, that invitation available to you. problem of sin within us required the power of God beyond us. We couldn't do it. Powerless to do it on our own, but thanks be to God who delivers us by way of Christ Jesus. And it's available to all who Believe, not by doing anything, not by earning your way to God, not by being perfect and cleaning yourself up before you get there. No, no, no. God used his power to do for us what we could not do in our own. And at our worst, Jesus gave us his best. So that life, available to all who believe, believe that Jesus' death and resurrection was enough to save you from that Adam jar and place you in the in Christ relationally connected to Jesus jar. And now that we have a full grasp of the problem in the next couple of weeks, we're gonna get into the practical implications of it. But today, today, we're reminded that there's a God that sees us There's a God that saw the plight of our human condition and wasn't okay with it. And there's a new life available. There's new hope available. There's redemption available. There's grace and forgiveness available. And Jesus, Jesus made it possible to move from in Adam to in Christ. Why? Because God loved Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we're grateful that you see us. We're grateful that you love us. And we are grateful that in our plight, you chose to save us. In our mess, you met us right where we were. Father, give us the courage to do some of what we've heard today. For the Jesus follower in the room that needs to be reminded of your never ending grace, would you remind them that they're in Christ always and forever? And for the person in the room that has never believed, would you give them the courage to take one step of belief towards you, towards your son, and towards the life that you have for them? We love you. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you proved it to us when you sent Jesus. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.